Hi, my name is Koride, a filmmaker, podcast producer, and all-round storyteller. I launched the African Filmmaker Podcast, hoping that it becomes a valuable resource for African filmmakers around the globe. For the first season, I was inspired to learn about the experiences of other filmmakers making their first feature films. I had a ton of questions when I was making my first feature film, and while I got a lot of help, I would have loved to hear firsthand from others who had walked the walk before me. If you're a filmmaker looking to make your first feature film in the future, this podcast is for you. For episode one, there was only one name on my mind, Taiwo Egunjobi. I enjoy his discourse on the Film Rats group and admire his work as a filmmaker. Taiwo is a screenwriter and film director whose shorts and feature films have been selected and screened in several film festivals, including Nollywood Week Festival in Paris, Real Time Festival, Zuma Film Festival, Echo International Film Festival, and so on. If you haven't seen his first feature film in Ibadan, you absolutely should. I'll leave links to watch in the show notes. Enough with the boring intro already. Let's jump right into the conversation. Okay, so I got into filmmaking um, officially sometimes in 2012, but I know at some point in university, I think under level or maybe some point in SST and university, I discovered that I was actually talented in writing stories. Uh, but maybe I didn't necessarily feel I was going to be into filmmaking. I felt I could have a lot of careers in writing, making music. I used to rap, you know, I used to do dramas. So I wanted to continue doing dramas and writing short, short playlets. And so, but was when I was, a lot of things happened. So in school, I had a very terrible uh, hundred level results in school. And I realized that I had to actually sit up and find that thing that was my own thing, that would be my own thing. And I knew storytelling was all about, was all about storytelling. And I knew I couldn't, I wouldn't be a successful musician. So I knew, okay, I can tell stories. So what are the platforms or what are the outlets for me to tell stories? So uh, naturally, film came up and that also happened to the time when I was, I was rediscovering some of the films I saw when I was growing up. You know, I saw the films of Tunde Kelani, some American classics like Dr. Zivago, um, of course, comedy projects like Police Academy. I was starting to rewatch those, and I was falling in love with some of the films that were out at the time, you know. And so um, I had a period where I really sat down to really map out myself as a person. What are the things I love doing and I can do for free? So naturally, I knew it was screenwriting. So my foray into filmmaking began from screenwriting. Um, yeah, so I started getting books online, getting resources on YouTube, started reading, started um, trying to write scripts, you know. So I started as a script writer. Mm. Did you do that professionally for a while before you picked up a camera? All right. So, I mean, I think it, it, it all happened uh, at the same time. Though I would say the, I, I was, I made my name as a screenwriter, but I've been, Directing. So I was lucky at some point in school to produce my first film. 
So I, I wrote the first draft for that film, uh, which was an 100 pager. And I met a, a friend who, Martin Chuku then, and he revised it and I produced, I didn't direct that, but that got me thinking about directing. So I started putting together little short films that some of them are out on YouTube and most of them are not out. Some of them I never finished. Started making those little short films and I was lucky to find a little company in Ibadan that needed a content creator. So I had access to camera, at least not a good camera, but something I could play around. So I was doing sketches, I was doing so. Uh, I wouldn't say I did um, writes and first, they moved to directing. So I've been directing stuff, but they were just short, short films that were in good, terrible films. I was also learning cinematography, kind of. So I was also shooting all the stuff myself working on people's sets and everything. But I made my name first as a screen playwriter. Uh, I'd, I'd read, I wrote um, Giddy Blues. I co-wrote Giddy Blues with Femi Coyote. And that was my first professional screenplay. Um, and that was also the learning I needed to have. You know, I'd be reading books about screenwriting, but I, I hadn't sold anything or written anything that was um, that was going to be used. And I didn't even know anybody, you know, no contact or anything. Mm -hmm. I was just some somebody in the corner in the bottom, just doing my own stuff. And long story short, I find somebody who knows somebody who knows someone and they need a writer. And I submitted for this pitch event. And then it turns out it's Giddy Blues, which was called played in Las Giddy at the time. Mm -hmm. And I wrote it and I was chosen to write the film. And that's how I started writing. So from that point, I wrote a couple of, let's say maybe three or four more films that got made. And, um, but I, in between that, in that process, I started losing interest because I had issues with um, the kind of stories that, that people wanted to tell. Mm -hmm. um, I, so I felt, okay, the way I'm feeling means I have actual stories that I want to tell. I, I don't want to be, someone who is just servicing the visions of others, which used to break my brain a lot of times, actually. You know, people will come to you with strange ideas and would insist on you writing it, and you try to make the argument, this isn't working at all. This isn't working for me as a professional. This isn't working for me scriptly. I mean, from technique, from, from I mean, it doesn't work. Let's work on character. Let's work on plotting. But producers have to be like, no, I, I want what I want. And that broke my brain a little bit mm. and got me thinking that I think I should just uh, cool down on, the, on this writing thing and focus more on development as a director, as a producer. Wow. Uh, but that didn't stop me from working with my mentors, who, who I regard as my teachers, you know, the likes of Emily Dubin, Mitsune Kelani, I was, I'm always going to write for them if they need me to write. I'm always going to be available for those people. And I was available and I'm still available, you know, because I had to restrict my, my myself to some people, for, from most people and just work with people that I feel uh, would produce a process that was helpful for me as a storyteller, because that's that has been important to me for a long time. And so I started working on developing myself as a director. And so I've been, of course, I've been learning a lot from doing short films and everything. Mm 
Mm. And eventually I said, okay, let's take the plunge. Let's make the first film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So before we That's talk about your, your first film, I'm curious about your yes. short films, the ones you called terrible. <laughs> are these films available to watch um, anywhere? I have a couple of films and uh, I think some are still on my hard drive, some I can find on my la- old laptop. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think quite a number of those films never got released and I never even finished them. Mm-hmm. Uh, some, I think I lost some actually, like some somebody didn't manage the footage well, maybe somebody deleted or somebody, some, someone's hard drive got bad and it's just lost. And uh, I think quite a couple are on YouTube too, you know. Yeah, I put some online. I think I still removed some, I think a few months ago also, you know. Uh, when you're trying to not make, you know, people see, you know, it's good to put it up, but you know, sometimes people see it and you know, it could just affect how they, yeah, honestly. Yeah, but, but I, yeah, yeah, so, but I still have some up deliberately that this is the process, is how I have grown, and this is the things, this is how to grow, this is, this is the process. So, yeah, I still have quite a couple of those, but I'm not proud of any of them. <laughs> okay, that's completely understandable. So your first yeah. um, feature film, Inibado, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yes, correct. What was the process um, like in the beginning, like conception? Why did you decide to tell that particular story? I did a lot of research and I started looking at what kind of stories can I tell with a limited budget not even a limited, but with no budget, basically, mm. with the spaces that I have and the areas I have. So I started thinking and researching what are the stories that we can do. And, and so it, it began from us, or myself and my writer, Isaac Aideji, or my close collaborator to not, not my writer, a close friend of mine. We started from us thinking about what can we do? And so we had a lot of ideas. I mean, in what is in Ibadan today started from a wedding film, actually, mm-hmm. something about a wedding. So the, it started from ideas and then looking at, okay, this idea cannot work with this budget. And there's something we've learned from studying the great independent filmmakers like Robert Rodriguez, uh, uh, what are their names now? Richard Linklater, all those big filmmakers I had humble beginnings, you know, um, no land. What you learn from watching their first films or their first low budget films is that they didn't um, try to make, they didn't shoot themselves in the leg by making ambitious a poor version of big films. What they did was understand the medium and what they had and work with the resources that they had. So. It was more or less resource filmmaking, being resourceful what we had. So that drove our thinking. And there was, at some point in that thing, that, that process um, melded together and it became art. You know, there's something Bradford Young used to talk about. Um, he said it in one of his interviews. He said, sometimes your difficulties becomes your process. So that difficulty of trying to manage, how do we tell a story that will, um, will be impactful emotionally, will be impactful intellectually and aesthetically? How do we get into that process? So that became, um, th- that, that came out of 
our difficulties in, okay, we don't have these locations, we don't have these actors, we don't have these cameras, we don't have this crew. And um, so we started thinking, so what we did was look at the films we enjoyed that affected us at the period and started looking at how do we marry these things. And so also, myself and Isaac, is usually a process of conversation. We are always in conversation. We are always talking. We are always, we, we have spoken for at least three hours today again. That's just how we are. So we kept talking, kept kept rolling that I, those ideas on our on our minds and kept watching films. You know, once we see, once we, we played with an idea and we got into some, oh, there's this film I saw, I saw a film called Blue Jay. Okay, Blue Jay from, uh, what's his name? I can't remember his name. Popular American um, low-budget director. Oh, I saw Blue Jay. Then we'll say, okay, this, this is similar. This is lovely. Can we take this? Oh, I saw Ida. What did you say? How long did that process take? Like working it out to writing the script? Yeah, so that took about a year. Wow. That took, that was 2018. That was most of 2018 to early part of 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, even, I think even for 2019 as well, you know, we, we kept discussing, kept sharing. So, I mean, I, like I said earlier, the idea began as a wedding film and it kept growing, you know, we wanted to make it black and white because we're just inspired by black and white at the time, you know. So we just kept talking and we kept looking for things we enjoyed. I mean, we saw Manchester by the Sea that was really, really important to what we're also trying to tell, you know. We saw things that we enjoyed in films that we were watching at the time and that was helping our process. Till we built, till we built it out to the point of, okay, there's something more that this story needs. Um, this character, this um, person we are trying to tell the story also resides in, a, in, an, in an environment and that environment as a character. Now, how can we use that, the character of, of that environment to tell a story about a place? So, how can we um, use the geography to, to communicate the same thing? How can we have a, a film that envelopes you emotionally, but also aesthetically? Mm. Or should I also say spatially? So that's where the, in the, in the battle connection comes in. Yeah, yeah, it goes back. Because I, I know I rambled a lot. You answered the question. <laughs> but from from after the, the screenplay was ready, first of how many drafts did you write? Did you guys write? Okay, so um, that's very difficult to answer. But we usually do around seven, eight drafts. Okay, okay. I'm sure there was a lot that's of back and forth. Definitely, because um, what, when we because the way it works was that I I, I want to do something, then then we had a script that I felt was ready. Then I was talking with a friend that I'm looking to do a film, and he said, "Why not talk to uh, my co-producer on Inibado? Uh, that Timmy Fushido who also acts as a lead." He says he's also looking for a film to produce. And so we met somewhere and we just connected immediately on that concept. So this is what I'm thinking. This is my idea. This is what we are feeling out as the mood of the film, as the style. And it begins to, I mean, it was one who argued that the film should be in color. And he made a very good argument about that. He wanted to be in black and white. He, he also started making comments about the characters, you know, started developing. And so, that process now became myself, Isaac, and Timmy Fushido. Started playing around with the script. And so we started on the first, second draft, and we had issues. Oh, we can't 
let's not write this location. We can't get this location. There's no point. Okay, let's write this location in. Oh, I have this house. You can shoot in this house. Okay, write that location there. And we started revising. Sometimes we revise based on ideas. Mm. Okay, what is the idea right now? Okay, the idea before was that this guy and this lady are currently in love. Okay, can we say they used to be in love? I started revising. And the same thing that happened with myself and Isaac also began to happen between three of us now. So we had about eight drafts and we still had a script reading with friends. I think two weeks to the to the to the shoot. Mm. And then that was with a friend called Demelade and some other people. And they gave us massive notes again that you guys should go and work on this. This is not clear, this doesn't work. And um, so we kept on drafting, I think, down to the down to I think. It did to shoot. We still had a different draft, you know. So it was a continuous process. And, you know, it still continued even in post. So, yeah. yeah. Sounds very rigorous. So how long did the film take to make? I mean, from, from conception now till when you started shoot, how long was that? Well, so let's just say it took a year. Um, okay. I mean... Took a year. We started concepting in middle of um, middle of um, 2018. Uh, finally shot in late 2019. If I, I hope I'm not botching the dates now, but I think we shot in late you know, 2019. Okay, so one question that is my um, also people's minds, new filmmakers, aspiring filmmakers, is budgets. I mean, even though you say that um, it was a no-budget film, you definitely spent money. Yes. So how much did you spend? Uh, we spent, say, 200000 naira. How did you spend that money? Because, I mean, what were the... Um, what, what did you prioritize? Right. So, I mean, if you... If you are like us, and you've read almost every, every article on low-budget filmmaking... Mm-hmm. There's an absolute important thing that you are told not to skimp on, and that is feeding. So most of that money went to feeding the crew. I mean, we are not paying anybody to do anything. I mean, everybody came to support the actors, the crew, because we're all friends. A bit went to getting extra lights because we had to light. And I think a little bit also actually went to... So buying hard drives, or did we buy hard drives? I don't even think. I think we we converted old hard drives we had. So a bit to maybe petrol to fuel the gen. But most of that budget went to feeding, and that's how we think uh, low budget films should be. If you're not paying people, at least feed them. You yeah. know. So. So I have a question, a very particular question. The lead character's room, I remember it was blue. And I was wondering, did you paint it or did you just find a room that had that color? So uh, we had been planning to use that room earlier. And uh, it was then the overdrew of my producer to to paint it. He saw he he had, there was extra paint in the house. And he said, why not? Let's do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That. So, yeah. so yeah, it's a it's a location that has many rooms. 
And we did quite a lot of the film in that house that we that you see that scene. So mm. um, it was kind of about the house we we actually lived in the house for quite a while too, actually. So mm. we had just we could just do anything with the house. We could paint it. We could do anything with it. So there was an empty bucket or a available bucket of paint, and they decided to paint it. So I was even aware until until we are ready to shoot. All right, fantastic. Um, how long? Yeah. How many days did you shoot for? I shot for a week. I wanted to shoot for. Um, I wanted to shoot for five days, but we had issues. Uh, so Monday, I was. I mean, my DOP couldn't join on Monday, so Monday I started shooting film myself. I shot day one myself. Um, so quite a lot of the scenes in the film, I actually shot them myself. And I think from date the DOP joined and we had to extend because um, issues happen on set, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> schedule doesn't work out at times. You know, people, things happen, locations change, something blows up, somebody comes late, something happens, yeah. you know, so we just had to it's extend. To so we what did you say? I said it's almost impossible to avoid those issues. It's not possible. You are working with a, it's a company of people and no matter how motivated and no matter how talented and professional you are, what usually happens is that because you are working in, in, in locations mm. that are not yours, when I say they're not yours, they're not sets that are built and created for purpose. You all you cannot avoid it, and even sets have problems that they don't foresee. You know, a camera can just stop working. You do you know that happens? Yes. You know. So while you are filming, okay, yeah. So in Ibadan, which one? Was yeah. the Worst. Which one was the worst issue that you had? Mm, I mean, I, I can't, I can't place it because I don't know how to answer because we prepared for the issues. So, um. I mean, you're dealing with everything's an issue, right? basically, you know. There are things you cannot do with your camera because you're using Panasonic GH4, which is a beautiful camera, but it, it cannot, it doesn't just function properly in the night. Mm. You know, so you are trying to, trying to manage that. You, you're not using, you, you cannot assure, you are not using consistently good lenses. You know, day one, we use poor lenses and, you know, so you are trying to, wait for the guy that's bringing the Rokinon lens that are going to use on it. So, so we, we have cinematography, things that you expect, but there's nothing counter about it. The camera will just give you noise. And so you're trying to look for meaningful ways to avoid that noise. So I'm using very cheap lights that won't give you great color renditions. So you're moving out to cinematography issues, which are a staple of the form, you know, but there are ways you work make these things work for you artistically. Mm -hmm. um, I, of course, we had problems with sound. I think that's what yeah. me the most in post-production. We used terrible mics and we used terrible mics that, I mean, we thought we could even manage and, you know, the, I mean, the kid who was recording sound, I love him, but he was a trainee at the time and he, he just didn't, monitor the sound as well as you thought it was. I mean, you would, would ask him, are you fine? He would say it's fine, but... <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, into... that, that sound thing, it has hurt me so many times. 
short films. I mean, yeah, it's the scourge of this of the film. I mean, it's the scourge of the. I mean, I have a beautiful film called Amokwe on YouTube, and it's possibly the most beautiful thing I ever shot. It's terrible because I just didn't get good sound, you know. So it's it's scourge, and you know, I think that was the biggest thing with doing low budget. A lot of times you are forced to work with crew that maybe are not as um, may not be fully. Um, uh, will not be very accomplished as a, as a skill set. So a, a lot of times, not every, every time. And if because I, of that, you suffer a lot in the past. That brings me to the next question. I mean, when you don't have money uh, and you don't yeah. exact, exactly have an extensive network, how do you put together a crew? Because from what you said, your crew, they were people you knew, right? Most of them, some of them were people my co-producer knew. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. so it was about okay what what did you tell them first of to get them on projects with you without paying them okay i mean it's i mean well i don't think it's tough you know because um i mean i don't want to brag but when you when, when we when we sit down with to talk to you about and pitch our project to you i mean we we uh, we have a way of making it sound important like if you're not doing this at this point in your career, you are just wasting. I mean, when are you going to have time to do something that is actually meaningful? And with that kind of a pitch, you know, we're selling it off as a very, a very, it's not general, it's just industry redefining film. You know, we are going low budget and going to be artistic low budget. And I think there's a way you need to be able to sell that vision. And so that's what we're able to sell. You know, this is going to be a special film. It's not going to pull up any trees. Mm-hmm. Best know that, but it's going to be a special film that has lots of art. And that's what we communicated. And that was enough to get a lot of people in. And, you know, on the flip side, a lot of people also wanted to work on a feature film. You know, quite a number of those people were had done short films. Some of them had assisted other people to do stuff, but they had, they were not necessarily unit leaders on their own, you know. Um, the DOP hadn't done a proper feature film before, especially not one that had any bit of artistic leaning. So mm-hmm. it was an interesting project for the DOP to try, you know. For the gaffer, he'd gone to film school, he hadn't done much apart from events, so same thing, you know. And I just across the different... Even the editor as well was his first time editing the a feature film. It was his first time editing the proper film. The was also the production manager at the same time. First time managing a project. So people were excited about taking on this thing. We've been doing sketches for a long time. We know how to work with low budget, no budget. We don't mind starving necessarily. So it wasn't wasn't too difficult. So and we were able to sell sell that. And of course, my lead. My co-producer, Timmy Fosdo, is a, is a very handsome young man. So yeah. he, there's a bit of privilege you get as an handsome young man these days, apparently. <laughs> People like you and you, you know, you can use that. Yeah, yeah so. Okay, okay. Fantastic. So do you think um, you would have made a better film if you had more resources? Hmm. Well, it depends at the point. So if I, if I had but if I had a lot of so I don't know what you mean by resources, because I don't know. Are you talking about money? <laughs> I'm talking about money. 
Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's let me let me let me try to say something and maybe maybe that will answer the question. Last week I spoke to Isaac. I said, Isaac, I've discovered that for the first time since I started making films, I am now a basic dramatist. That is, I now understand the principles of basic drama. Mm. But I've been working since 2013. Mm. And that was also like his own sit-up call to like, okay, we don't know nothing yet. We're still learning a lot. So if I had resources before in Ibadan, you probably, probably suck more, mm. you know, because I would absolutely do pretentious things with money and mm. I wouldn't be pushed so much. I wouldn't be pressured so much to try to find something extra, mm. which is what I felt in Ibadan. I still can't be in Ibadan to watch in Ibadan at times, you know, I mean, I, I, I can't even sit through a, a watching, basically, you know. I tell people it's a boring film, why are you watching it? You know, but there's something there. I can't deny that. There's something that's honest about it. The performances are honest. The, the look is different. And that came from difficulty. Like I said earlier, you process that emerges from difficulty. I wouldn't find that process if I had access to stuff. I would just shoot a, a, a regular coverage. And we, we've discussed coverage a lot of times. I don't think you, if you remember when we, when we were talking, when we spoke earlier, Mm-hmm. how to just do coverage different ways. I mean, you learn how to do coverage different ways when you have a camera mm-hmm. and you just have one camera and you have just 10 minutes to shoot. You need to learn how to creatively cover that scene. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to know how to move with, with terrible lenses. How do you move with bad locations? How do you make a bad location look good? You have to go to artistic solutions. So if I had more resources, I'm not sure I'll make a better film. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So... Your pre-production process, I mean, you already mentioned that you did extensive pre-production. Can you give me an overview of what that was like? Okay. Uh, pre-production, of course, uh, begins, well, began even before we had the final draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, one thing we do extensively, or, or I started creating as our process was to begin to do our location scouting. That is very key to even how we finalize our scripts. So we did a lot of location scouting. Every location we we wanted, we felt we could use. We visited the locations with a camera, with the DOP and myself and the producer, the co-producer. And we took pictures of the scenes that we wanted to create. So we possibly had a kind of a DOP rehearsal. We had the argument over the timing of the shoot, the kind of frames we wanted to shoot. And we put those pictures together and, and it, it was a document. It was like a mood board, a storyboard of sorts. We knew what we wanted to shoot. We knew the compositions. We knew where we wanted to shoot. We knew what time worked best. We knew what area worked best. So we did extensive location scouting. So you are talking about doing um, DOP rehearsals. So were you able to do that on the locations that you wanted to shoot, that you intended to shoot in? Yes, exactly. That's what we did. We were able to decide on compositions. Uh, that allowed us to be more prepared. So we had that, I mean, extensive rehearsals because you don't have the actors there. And, and you know, but at least we were able to decide on compositions and um, positions just take, you know, basically. So that was very good from a visual perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, more so visually. 
we also exchange lots of reference with the crew. You know, we set up this WhatsApp page where we kept adding the actors and the crew members and started having conversations about what are the films we are doing. I mean, what are the close films tonally? Uh, artists like Blue Jay, Ida, uh, Manchester by the Sea, you know, so that was very key to the pre-production process, you know. So apart from, apart from um, Timmy, how did you get the other actors? Yeah, so um, the other actors are also either my friends or Timmy's for those friends and family. Uh, we, of course, like I said, we've been doing stuff for quite a while. And because of that, we, we've developed some sort of an underground um, community of artists. Of course, this community of artists extends to Lagos, you know, so, but we still have that Ibadan thing where we all came, most of us were in the UI, OEU axis, people who have done stuff together, short films in the past, stage plays together, um, we had just done stuff together. So it was easy to pull people from that place. For example, um, Goodness, who plays the Ewa character in the film, he was a very good friend of Timmy Fujido. And yeah, they had the romantic relationship at the time. Uh, while Similulu Olatunji, who plays, I can't remember the name of the other character, Chayo. It's a very close friend of mine. She had been in my short films in the past. Um, you know, Chris Ayaya, who plays a friend, is a friend of us, UI people, you know. So it was easy to pull people from those corners, you know, or just based on relationships, basically. Mm. Were you able to have um, rehearsals with the actors before you brought them on set? Yeah, so what we had, we, there were, we had readings. So I, I necessarily, I'm not necessarily a rehearsal person, but we have readings. And the readings were, were mostly discussions about um, painful aspects of relationships. So it was more about getting people to open up because these were all capable actors. So we knew we could actually let them do what they wanted to do. And as a director myself, I necessarily don't, I don't know how to guide actors into doing everything I want them to do. No. I let them choose a lot of things that they do. But what we created was readings that were like family talking sessions. I mean, I, I remember asking everybody on the table when we're having a reading. Uh, that's not everybody. Anyway, that's just the two key actors. That's Timmy Fushido and Goodness. I think I had a couple of call script readings, phone call script readings with um, Tunde who plays the bad guy. But mm -hmm. apart from those ones, the, the two sessions we had for script reading were between the two main actors in the film. And we're just mostly talking about relationships. We're getting them to see, to get into the emotional landscape of the story. Once they were opened up, um, it was easy for them to be the role. I mean, I remember Temi Voshudo was so sad in the duration of the story that I felt he was genuinely sad. And I had to ask him during shooting that. I, I see you've not smiled since you said act. And then and we've stopped rolling. So I see you haven't still smiled. What is the problem? And it's like, no, there's nothing. So then my friend Eddie now tells me that they may have been watching Manchester by DC every night on this set. Wow. Because that film is similar to what I mean, it's similar emotionally to what we're trying to 
tell through what trying to tell. So Femi was literally in character because he had opened up so much to that character and he was in the right emotional space for it. Same thing for goodness. They put watch these films together every night after shooting. They told me that later. And they were so that's my job, you know, as a director. I'm not there to coach you. I just want you to open up emotionally to the character and to the story world. Once you're opened up, then you choose your scenes. You choose what you are you're going to react and use these lines. You know, there are places where the script says, and she sobs. I don't do that to the actors. Yes, it's there in the script. It's good for you to sob. But in this moment, goodness, what do you want to give me? What are you feeling? And I think from, from what I even hear, actors, actors hate that, that line reading thing. Well, um, I think I would disagree slightly. I think some actors thrive with being directed heavily. Um, just to refer to, his, to, a, to, to an incident, um, during the shooting of Lighthouse, sorry, I'm referring to Hollywood, which does, it should not, I don't know what your stance is on that, but anyway, Lighthouse, um, what's his name? Pattison says he tried off extensive rehearsals while the other man says he doesn't. I've forgotten Jeremy Strong. No, it's not Jeremy Strong. Uh, what's his name? I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm losing it. But the point is there are different types of actors and I think maybe you've been privileged to work with people who work that way, but I've met actors who actually need to be, to be, to be directed. Yeah, they, they, they work that way. So I think it's, a, it's about finding the right people for the role. I feel this kind of film requires people who are very open emotionally. Mm. And yeah, so and that's the kind of actors that we had. No, I feel like having a conversation with the actors as well. Because, I mean, it was... Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So meanwhile, um, one other question I, I get every once in a while from aspiring filmmakers is... I mean, they don't know anybody. They want to make a film, but oh, how do they get their crew? How do they get their cast? I mean, you already said that um, you worked with your network, people that you already knew. But do you have any advice for people who are very new in this space and may not have, you know, the kind of network that you have? Okay, so uh, I think everybody has some kind of network, no matter how close you are to society. I mean, at, at worst, you should have a dog. <laughs> but, you know, um, what would I say? So I think before people try to do stuff, mm. uh, before you try to do a feature film, at least maybe you should have made a couple of short films. Yeah. You know, and thank God it's. I mean, when in 2011, when I went to meet Martin Chuku out of the blue, mm. that young man, I hear you are the most intelligent director in the school. I have a script and I need to direct it. There wasn't social media. I mean, where social media savvy then? You know? But today you can get into people's DMs. You can send messages. You can put up stuff online. Oh, I'm making a film. I'm looking for collaborators. There's no money, but we're just going to have fun. I'm sure there will be a few takers. You know, uh, you could put out, I remember putting out audition posts for my short film then. How arrogant was I to have done that. I mean, not proper audition posters mm -hmm. that were well-printed, not paper, you know, and people paid for my audition wow. then back in school. Who paid to... So, I mean, I still have friends from that period that said, who is this person who has the arrogance to... <laughs> I mean, that this dude is a student, 200 level student for that sake. So, 
what I'm just saying is that put yourself out there and do something, begin to create a community around what you do, mm. you know, and also be willing to help others. So this attitude of I'm a filmmaker, man, I still carry the boom pole mm. on my own hands. I still wow. carry, I mean, my last film, I was still carrying the gem with the boys and uh, let's just put the gem there. And people were like, oh, no, no, no. So they are used to it now. now. Mm. I can call you, you say you're the writer. What are you doing on the set? Looking, okay, writer, man, please go and help them to carry that place. That's how we... Yeah, all hands on deck. All hands on deck, you know, because it's the picture that matters for me, you know. So so when you also grow that way also, because that's also how I grew too. I started helping other filmmakers in the background who, maybe some of them, I didn't even read them artistically, but they were doing stuff. So I would just go there, carry cameras and shoot stuff for them. Some of them, I would just go there to record sound with the zoom H for hand or something, Tascam, DR for the, you know, just do something. And that's how we started building that community, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So put yourself out there, put, I mean, put yourself out there through social media, ask for people to join you, to help you. Also try to help others. Oh, there's somebody doing something in there. Just go, I mean, Isaac walked up to me after he had seen Blades of Envy in school. I had shown it in 2013 to an audience. And he came to meet me in that my room. That was a short film you made? Yes, that was the first short film I produced, yeah. Blades of Ennui. Uh, psychological horror something, something. So mm-hmm. YouTube. And it's not very terrible. <laughs> so, directed <laughs> by Martin Chuku, by the way. So, it's my daddy in film. So, but Isaac Ayodeji walked up to me. We didn't know that he was a physical student, physiotherapist, just a gentle guy doing his own. So, he had been writing for the press and his in his class and he was, he could write points. He just walked up to me randomly, said, young man, you are the director of this film. I know about you. I want to work with you. I want to work for you. I want us to be working together. Okay, fine, let's see what you have. Oh, what you have is crap, but let's see how we can make it work. And we've been on it. So also walk up to people, ask to, ask to help and maybe, and no, you will build something out of it. Not even maybe, yeah. Okay, thank you so much for that advice. So what would you say um, you learned from the experience of making your first feature film? My first feature film humbled me. Mm. And I think every film I've done uh, is still the same effect. I think I, I mean, prior to making those films, I felt, okay, okay, right now, I think I'll eat it. I think... I, I, I mean, when I remember making my, producing my first film, then I had written this script that I felt was superior, at least to all Tony Kalanis films. I think that I, I, I thought I had seen enough of his films to be able to copy exactly what I saw. Mm-hmm. So no, 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 no. Yes, I know there are people that can write, but dude, I am solid, mm-hmm. you know? I'm making my first film. Mm-hmm. You know, when you first see the rushes, you know, after then, you first start seeing the noise in the image. Okay, there's problem. <laughs> Then you start hearing the sound. Wow. So this person, sound, <laughs> they start seeing the places where there was a guy at the back of the, I mean, in the scene that was just looking and staring straight <laughs> at the camera. How did you see this guy? <laughs> I mean, okay. now that we are talking yeah. about it here, yeah, I'm just thinking about my own first film as well. Like, <laughs> you are getting big things, right? You know, so, yeah. so humbling. Like, I've seen. You know, then I started seeing issues I had with storytelling. Okay, why 
is this scene slow and drab? Why, why did I think this would work? This doesn't work. The actors don't look comfortable saying these lines. Why did that? Why is this there? This doesn't make any sense. Who wrote this thing? Did I direct this thing too? You know, so, no, I don't, I can't stand watching my own films. I mm. can't stand it. Okay, I think the last short film I did is a film I haven't released yet. I think I've seen it four or five times. I think I like it. It's probably the only thing I've done that I can see. And maybe because it's, a, it's, a, it's an adaptation of somebody else's work, maybe that's why, you know, but mm. it just humbles me, you know, because I just feel, man, I don't know anything. And, you know, it's one of those days when I just, okay, like, I think, I think I don't know anything. And, you know, every time I've made a film, I have had to go back to the books after making it. I've had to go back to some of the books I had before. Sometimes I just go back and just break down everything I know and start all over again. Mm-hmm. You know, I just start all over again. So uh, it, that's that's post, that's what I got from making my first film. After making Nebado, I broke down everything I knew. I I ignored everything again and went back to the books. I need to learn how to tell stories because I have a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, so, yeah. so that's that's what I learned. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing. I was wondering, did you have yeah. a um, a marketing or distribution strategy before you set out to make the film? All right. So, I mean, we have been circling the industry since 2013 or should I say 14, actually. And so we had friends out there. But, you know, if you remember, there, there's not a lot that's written about this process, you know, oh, wow, you know, actually in Hollywood, I mean, there's a lot you can read about Hollywood. In Hollywood, how you get your film, I mean, the tons of articles. But for Hollywood, there's really nothing for us to learn from. And everybody we knew that was working in the industry at the time usually gathered the secrets of marketing and distribution. And, you know, you just don't know what works. All you know is that. I mean, but there was a consensus around 2016, 17 that, oh, there is a cabal and it's against everybody. Everybody hates you. Nobody likes you. So to be very honest with you, what we said was that we don't know how this game up works. Nobody's going to tell us. Let's find out by making our film. So we make our film. We have nothing we have planned. Yes, we will go to festivals, but let's see what it looks like. So we only knew we are going to festivals. That's the only thing we knew. We didn't know whether we were going to go to TV. We didn't care just said it's it's a cheap film i mean if we don't make our money back nobody will die mm-hmm. so we, we didn't have any plan as such we just said go to the festivals see what people say see how people value the content see how the market responds to the, to, to the film then from there you get a sense of how the market operates mm-hmm. and it really did that for us so mm. so you learned a bit about uh, the distribution bit we learned a lot about it's not a bit, a lot about it. After lots of um, rejections, you learn quite a bit. Mm. So why don't you tell us a bit about that? Well, I mean, what you learn is that um, the market, at least if you want to go on the mainstream, um, I mean, learned quite a lot because we also struggled in the festival circuit as well. Not We didn't do as well as I felt we could. And that's also because I thought I was special, but you know so you know so we we discover that the festivals that matter really play a certain kind of film you know so your film doesn't necessarily have to be um strong only aesthetically it doesn't need to be strong thematically and each festival does have a focus but usually you need to be strong thematically and these themes are usually around certain themes that you know they want to see they want you to 
to sometimes blend the genres, but also, you know, play with your themes a little bit more. No, but you know, our story was it's just is a, a man that loved a woman once and he's thinking about it. I mean, so and that's not mind blowing. That's not exactly what you should be intrigued about. In some ways, our film has some of these elements, like it's a love letter to a city. I think that's a bit of festival-ish, you know, so, but we discovered more why we couldn't just play at some of the festivals we were really admiring. And we discovered that, okay, yes, we we shouldn't play on sound at all. We didn't want to play with sound, but we, we had those issues, but we learned how difficult it is to get taken seriously when your sound doesn't work well. Uh, we learned why you need to plan for your media assets while you're shooting and not after shooting, you know. You know, you want to take your poster shots, you want to take your photography behind the scene footage, all those things need to be prepared for. So we learned those kind of things. Like you need those resources where you're trying to build your press kits and that helps you a lot, you know. So we also learned that success on the festival run should also accompany having a publicist or at least a publicity plan which means you need to interact a lot with the press. And this was very, um, I mean, we've learned that it's very important to have a publicist, especially if you're going to a top festival. Um, it helps when your name is out there somewhere in some, yeah. in some publication. And that's just festivals. But on the business part of it, we learned that in Hollywood, if you don't have faces and you're not distributed by the right person, you will struggle to find deals. And in our film, we don't necessarily have the most commercial faces. And to make things worse, the story is incredibly slow mm. for the typical type of stories you get on the market that have similar themes, at least. You know, it's slow. And the cinematography is just, I mean, people say, I mean, people watch it and say, okay, it's different, but they necessarily don't want to give you this because they're not sure that they can program it for their audiences, whether TV or or the cinema. Of course, we didn't even we didn't plan. We didn't. We knew there was nothing. There was no use going to cinema, so we didn't even try to to go there. You know. So we we discovered those things more and more. So okay, if you want to put your film for certain platforms, you need certain amount of faces or some faces, and these are faces that need to be important enough to get a deal. And um, yeah, I mean, we learned that there were also much more powerful distributors in town and uh, mm -hmm. and uh, distributors are very powerful, you know. <laughs> and we learned, you know, you know, we and we are still learning, you know. So yeah, I, I think I don't know if I've answered the question, but yeah, you have. Yeah, we learned yeah, just to recap, we learned a bit about the festival game where you need to if you're going to play on the festivals, you need to work on your story and your aesthetics. That is visual storytelling. How are you telling visually? Is it different? Is it stimulating? It has to be, okay, if you're not going to really do that or you want to do that, but you see it's work on your themes. Your themes must do something. Are you playing the genres or are you saying something really important politically, socially, uh, something that is really emotionally resonant? You know, it has to just be something that is different. Festival audiences are looking for those. Festival curators are looking for those. And from the distribution side of it, Nigerian film, maybe most in most places, the emphasis on having faces is a lot. And so uh, we learned that in the faces. But we also learned something too, actually. We learned that, I mean, we've made 
back our budgets and quite a couple of dollars from having our film distributed an American run platform called Quilly TV. Uh-huh. And that's um, a surprise to most people. You you wouldn't know that these platforms have people that would, I mean, have watching audiences like that really. And I wouldn't have thought so. I mean, I know Quali TV. If I see Quali TV, I can hug them because they pay me every four months for the film. And it's quite a good amount of dollars, you know, especially for a film we didn't market on their platform because we are another platform so they don't really put too much attention when you are not on other platforms as well we are not exclusive so we learned that there's an audience for a kind of film mm. abroad international market there's an audience even though you don't have your stars you don't have nothing you just have a story and a style that is interesting there's an audience for that stuff mm. and they don't care about your stars they just want your stuff if it's honest, if it's if it's beautiful, if it's earnest, then they will watch it. And so we discovered that too that yeah, there's 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 some audience there. Mm, that's really nice to hear. Yeah, that's really nice to hear. So I hope there's a filmmaker yeah, out there that's encouraged that. by that. No matter how crazy your ideas are, <laughs> you'll find your audience. I said no matter how crazy your ideas are, you'll find your audience. They don't have to be mainstream, mainstream all the time. Yes, I mean, I mean, it's a terrible weight to put on everybody that you need to be mainstream. I think I have fought for, for the, I mean, I have fought for people to, to learn how to do films and, you know, learning that film is a business and you need to learn how to balance stuff. But yes. I've also fought for people's rights to not want to be mainstream and there's a valid way to live, you know, what you create is a product of who you are and I don't advise anybody to try to be who they are, they are not, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, an, I mean, it's an explosion of who you are. So if you what you are, if you are, if you are not mainstream and you are, you are borderline on the, on the fringes of the world and you are just very strange, you need to be you because that's how you will get your satisfaction, your personal satisfaction as a person, your sense of if you don't get it, you will be miserable. Yeah. yeah. So why are we engaging? Why is why are people trying to want people into the into the into the mainstream? Not everybody should be in the mainstream. We need people who will not be in the mainstream. So yes. Yeah, I agree. Final question. What is your your favorite right. Tunde Kelani movie? My favorite Tunde Kelani movie, that's a difficult question because all his films, or most of the films are my favorite films, but for certain reasons, I don't, I mean, it's such a difficult question, but <laughs> I think Tioluanile for me, you know, because uh, Tioluanile is his first film and <laughs> uh, Tioluanile is an interesting character sto- study that defies everything I had studied about screenplay writing. I mean, where's the character arc? This guy is mischievous from scene one to the, to, 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 to the end. So where, what is his character arc really? You know, where's that? I mean, you don't know. I mean, this guy is clearly a terrible human being, but you are watching the man. So 
the anti-hero character is it the anti. I don't even know, man. It's just a brilliant story yeah. about greed. You know, it taught me, and that's one of the films that I keep on referencing to. How do you tell a story about greed and power mm. in a way that is, I mean, it's folkloric. You know, it's embedded in this in this character. And the things he says, the things they say, the conversations are not just words. The conversations are representative of philosophies. Well, don't let me ramble. I'm ashamed to say I haven't seen the film. I've seen a number of Tineke and his films. I haven't seen Tineke, which is sad. Wow. Well, I think you need to find time to see it. Well, also, you know, I also understand you're, you're a cinephile, so you, if you haven't seen it, it's possibly because you don't feel like seeing it. And there's some value to that. Sure there are films I know. <laughs> I'm sure I have a better reason. I think I tried to find it on YouTube once and I couldn't find it. I don't know. I'll try again. Okay. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mr. Taiwo, for your time. No problem. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I was invited to speak. We also have a website where we do similar stuff, filmcalco.com. Exactly. Uh, we should interview you to one of these days so that we have a... Um, yeah, so looking forward to your publishing of it. Uh, thank you. You're still here. Thanks, Emil, for sticking around till the end. Watch Taiwo's first feature film in Ibadan on Kweli TV or Afroland TV. Links in the show notes. I've also included the link to watch Blades of Inui, the first short film Taiwo produced. Before you go, please take a screenshot of this podcast and share on your social media. Share with your friends and family who are filmmakers or aspiring filmmakers. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode and we hope to see you on Instagram. Our handle is at the African Filmmaker. If you'd like to connect with me, my handle is at Koredi, that is K-O-R-A-Y-D-A-Y. Follow Taiwo on Instagram at Taiwo underscore Ikunjobi. If you're more of a Twitter person, tweet at me and let me know what you thought of this episode. My Twitter handle is at I am Koredi. Until the next episode, toodles.